Welcome back from your Christmas break. I hope all of you had a good experience of being home. However, I do recognize that, in fact, not everyone has a good experience because of situations with your families, with friends, maybe even tensions or difficulties that some of you experience with priests, which I find always uh, very difficult. But know that it's good to have you back, and if anyone needs to see me, please do so. Several of you have already expressed your desire to talk about some things over the Christmas break. Uh, certainly your spiritual directors and your formation advisors uh, are very much available to you, but as the pastor and the spiritual father of this house, I very much want to be sure that you're being supported uh, in your vocation and your discernment, even if we feel from time to time uh, interfered with uh, because of some of these experiences that we have no control over. Okay, let's uh, begin here from St. John's first letter to the early Christian community. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Beloved, we have this confidence in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in regard to whatever we ask, we know that what we have asked him for is ours. If anyone sees his brother sinning, if this sin is not deadly, he should pray to God and he will give him life. This is only for those whose sin is not deadly. There is such a thing as deadly sin, about which I do not say that you should pray. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that is not deadly. We know that anyone begotten by God does not sin, but the one begotten by God he protects, and the evil one cannot touch him. We know that we belong to God, and the whole world is under the power of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come, and has given us discernment to know the one who is true, and we are in the one who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Children, be on your guard against idols. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear sons, we had an opportunity before the Christmas break to reflect on our Holy Father's reflections on the Jubilee Year of Mercy. In that last conference, we reflected upon the corporal works of mercy, drawing from Matthew chapter 25. And I was asking us, as seminarians here in this community, how might the corporal works of mercy be exercised in a very deliberate and intentional manner? Feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned, and burying the dead. Not to over-spiritualize these corporal works of mercy. What do each of these mean here in the seminary? To feed the hungry. I know some of you men are hungry 
for community life, hungry for the spiritual life, hungry for the truth. And sometimes we can struggle with how to satisfy that type of hunger. How can brothers help each other out? Giving drink to the thirsty. We are all thirsty for salvation. And while each of us personally must take account for salvation as Christ offers it to us, we do so in the context of the community, in the context of the ecclesial community, the body of Christ. Clothing the naked. I know a lot of you uh, are in need, not just of physical needs, uh, but also in need of clothing ourselves with Christ, as St. Paul so often says, to take the old man off and put on Christ. How are we helping each other in that conversion experiencing? Welcoming the stranger. 48 of you come from different countries, and I think your presence build up this apostolic community, and it's a reflection of the Catholicity of our church, even here at Notre Dame Seminary. However, I would be very dissatisfied if I knew that some seminarians felt like strangers, even in the seminary community. Visiting the sick. Certainly we have outreach to one another when we're ill, but sometimes there are sicknesses that touch upon, again, our spiritual life. Sicknesses that can even affect the way we present ourselves as a community. How are we bringing accountability to one another? Visiting the imprisoned. Now, I would like to think that the seminary does not see itself as a prison, but we do have responsibilities while we are here. The people of God are providing significant resources for each of you, and there are responsibilities that can prevent us, as it should, from us being able to move beyond this community while we are here, and that can create loneliness, frustration, anger, as we're trying to go about our seminary responsibilities. How can we help one another? Burying the dead uh, from week to week, month to month, how often we pray for one another when we do lose a family member. And we've had very clear instances, uh, even recently, when some of you have lost a parent or a sibling. Uh, and while we can go through those particular moments, spiritually and liturgically, what happens afterwards? And how are we taking care of one another uh, as that process of grieving unfolds. And so that was a, just a quick overview of what we talked about last time. In this particular Rector's Conference, I would like us to consider, as Pope Francis presents to us through the Pontifical Council for the New Evangelization with writings that were prepared for the Year of Mercy, how can we exercise the spiritual works of mercy here at Notre Dame Seminary. And so I'd like us to uh, open ourselves up to that possibility, recognizing as St. John wrote in that gospel that I just read to you, that in many ways, the power of the evil one has authority, when we allow it, in our world. And yet, as St. John reminds us, we belong to Jesus. We belong to him we are in him. And when that happens, the evil one cannot touch us, as St. John writes. But in ways, because we're all sinners, we know what that evil feels like when we are touched by evil and when we permit sin in our own life, when we open ourselves up to sin because of pride, thinking that this particular sin is something that can gratify us beyond what the truth can give to us. We've all been seduced into thinking of how sin can actually make us more free when in fact we become more imprisoned. 
We recognize that original sin comes to us because of the pride by which we believed that we preferred ourselves over to God's plan. And therefore, when original justice is shattered because of original sin, we suffer deficiencies. These deficiencies touch upon the spiritual life. And therefore, it's the spiritual works of mercy that can respond to those deficiencies that occur. And so from their beginnings, the seven spiritual works of mercy were entrusted to each individual and therefore proposed as a general rule to each and every Christian to put these into practice. That also helps our own spiritual life, but also the spiritual life of the entire church and of this community here. These seven spiritual works of mercy can be grouped into three blocks. First are the three initial works of vigilance, counsel the doubtful, instruct the ignorant, and admonish sinners. Vigilance. Then there are the three central works focused on reconciliation, comforting the afflicted, forgiving offenses willingly, bearing wrongs patiently, and finally is the work that sums up all the others, prayer, focused on asking God on behalf of the living and the dead for his power to reconcile, to heal, and to save. So again, I'd like us to consider these seven spiritual works of mercy, both personally, wherever you're at in your discernment, in your formation, and then at the level of our community. Okay, the first is to be watchful, to be vigilant. This teaches us how to look outside of ourselves. It invites us to a new watchfulness made of compassion and love for those in need, those who are ignorant, those who live in error. And so as St. John, again, in that gospel, or, or in his, I'm sorry, his first letter writes, discernment is a gift to be able to discern, to watch, and to be vigilant. And so the first is counsel to the doubtful. The criterion for good counsel. We hear the sage Ben Sirach uh, providing to us the criterion for this idea of counseling the doubtful as our first spiritual work of mercy. Ben Sirach points out the issue of truth and the critical importance of good conscience and the quest for it. For as he writes, quote, and establish the counsel of your own heart, for no one is more faithful to you than it is. For a man's soul sometimes keeps him better informed than seven watchmen sitting high on a watchtower. And besides all this, pray to the Most High that he may direct your way in truth, end quote. And so, allowing oneself to be counseled so as to discern the truth. So how do we allow ourselves to be counseled when we feel the experience of doubt? We must know where to doubt, we must know where to feel certain, and we must know where to submit. See, that's good vigilance, that's being watchful, that's being able to provide counsel. To know where our doubt is, to know where we are very certain no matter what the winds of change blow, and we're to submit where we need to be able to adjust. See, freedom is the key to all of this. If we are men of freedom, 
then we're going to be able to allow counsel to come to us and eventually counsel that will be given to each other. Secondly, the second spiritual work of mercy is instruct the ignorant. You know, we're told often that the average catechetical background of a Catholic in the United States is at the sixth grade level. And so a lot of people do not have the catechetical formation to be able to take their faith and then to live it in ways that correspond to the realities of our society today, which are very challenging. So we read, for example, in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8. Do you understand what you are reading? As Philip asks the official reading the prophet Isaiah. And what what is the response here? How can I unless someone guides me? As we hear Jesus explaining in the Gospel of Matthew, neither be called masters, for you have one master, the Christ. And this includes the confession of faith in Jesus. Since for us there is one God, the Father and the one Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only teacher. And that we've been baptized into the teaching mission of the Gospel of his own life, the mission of the church, to teach and baptize all nations. And so we are to give an account for what it is that we believe. And by giving an account, we are teaching. We are giving the reply to others. This is so much a part of priestly ministry today. But we have to ask ourselves, uh, even here uh, at the seminary, instruct the ignorant. Sometimes seminarians and priests believe that we have all the answers to all the questions that are being asked. There's a certain humility that sometimes we're not gonna know all of the answers, particularly in the realm of pastoral ministry where life can be very complicated and people can be turned away if the priest comes rushing in to give the textbook definition to an aspect of our faith, which is true, but it is not corresponding to where people's lives are at. We cannot change that church teaching. We cannot manipulate it. We can't reduce it. All we can do is teach it clearly with the pastoral sensitivity of how to make this accessible. What's the point of teaching something if we're not making it accessible to people where they are at? And so, again, the whole art of preaching and the whole art of teaching requires us to be very familiar with why people find themselves in ignorance and how we're going to be able to move from it. Thirdly, admonish the sinner. So we hear in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, end quote. How often we've talked about fraternal correction here at the seminary. As future fathers of the church, we expect obviously that you are good sons of the church, learning how to be brothers to one another. If we're going to be admonishing the sins of other people, we have to first learn how to do that within this community. And that allows us, first of all, to recognize that we ourselves are sinners. And so fraternal correction has to be exercised firmly, but without harshness, as the psalmist says 
in Psalm 6. Without exasperating or humiliating the one admonished, as St. Paul writes to the Ephesians. A young person can thus be uh, admonished by an older person, but even an older person must allow himself to be admonished by a younger person. And we have here a very diverse community where some of you who have life experience with age and other experiences, you will admonish your younger seminarians, but you will also be open to being admonished by our young men who have often a very clear view and a zeal of ministry that can sometimes need in each one of us a way for clarification. And so fraternal correction requires discernment in order to choose the right moment to correct so as to increase and not decrease a brother's self-esteem, to exercise it only in truly essential things, no nagging, we don't need that here, However, to strive to make free rather than to judge and condemn. We want free brothers. And so is my correction going to hopefully bring about freedom or only ingrain them furthermore into their own sin? If all of this happens, the fraternal correction suggested will be received. That is the prayer. Okay, so those are the first three spiritual works of mercy that requires vigilance, watchfulness, and discernment. That requires a certain maturity uh, that each of us are able to have so that we are attuned to the spiritual realities within this community while we move about in a temporal way from day to day, week to week, from schedule to schedule, all that's being required of us. So hopefully our eyes and minds and hearts are being opened to the work of the Holy Spirit, which always enables us to see how the kingdom of God is being manifested, even in the seminary. And when you bring this to the level of a parish community or whatever assignment that you might have in your diocese or religious order, you will have cultivated this sense of discernment and vigilance, seeing amongst the flock clearly how the Holy Spirit is moving about, and also seeing where reconciliation, peace, needs to be brought to God's people, and you who will exercise the spiritual powers of the church in hearing people's confession, confecting the Holy Eucharist, and being simply the spiritual father can bring about this communion in the body of Christ. Okay, uh, that leads us to the second category of these spiritual works of mercy, which is having a conciliatory spirit, of which four, five, and six of these spiritual works of mercy can be grouped. The practice of following the three works favors the conciliatory spirit, comforting the afflicted, forgiving offenses willingly, and thirdly, bearing wrongs patiently. These three works are part of a conciliatory attitude, which is a fundamental attribute of being a disciple of Jesus. We have a conciliatory spirit if we acknowledge our own need to be reconciled to God. Indeed, we cannot comfort, we cannot forgive, we cannot patiently endure the injustices unless we recognize that we are debtors to Christ. We owe him everything, and therefore we can give to others that which we have received from God, namely reconciliation. Okay, comfort the afflicted. 
You know, in her own history, Jerusalem had the experience of total abandonment. How often deprived of all consolation from her allies, we see her exclaiming, quote, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me, as we see in Isaiah 49. But the Lord, in fact, was her real consoler proclaiming, quote, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, in Isaiah 40. And, quote, the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted, as we see in Isaiah 49. God indeed comforts his people with the kindness of a shepherd, as we see in Isaiah 40. The affection of a father, the ardor of a bridegroom and a husband, Isaiah 54, and the tenderness of a mother, Isaiah 66. He has therefore bequeathed to his people his promise, as we see in Psalm 119, and his mercy, the law and the prophets, as we see in Maccabees, the scriptures that St. Paul refers to in Romans 15, all of which will allow us to overcome grief that is so much on display throughout the Old Testament. And then in that grief, to live in hope. For indeed, Jesus announced as the Messiah, as we see in Luke chapter 2, is the consolation of Israel. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He also gives courage to those overwhelmed by sin or by illness, which is a sign of it and offers relief to those who are weary and burdened, as we see in Matthew chapter 11. But I think St. Paul really captures this, this theology of consolation, as we see in his second letter to the Corinthians. Quote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we are abundantly comforted too. End quote. And so how will we comfort the afflicted here at Notre Dame Seminary? How do you allow your afflictions to be seen? Not in a way where you're looking for pity or attention or emotionalism, woe is me, woe is me, but rather a fundamental trust that I need a brother's help. Because I can tell you, especially for those of us as diocesan priests, that when we are in the field, often alone, in our rectories, in our parishes, and when those afflictions become very real, we have a responsibility of knowing how to reach out to brother priests, to good lay men, women, and men who are our friends. Again, not seeking a false resolution or a false comfort, but rather allowing the body of Christ to be with us in our own time of need. As priests, of course, we are servants, so we're constantly having our viewpoint towards shepherding the flock, but we ourselves need to be shepherded. And when we are afflicted, hopefully we have cultivated the necessary virtue of knowing how to respond with other people, those afflictions. And so how are we doing that here? Do we falsely hide our afflictions because it might be seen as a weakness to a brother seminarian or even to a formator? That somehow my weakness and my affliction 
is going to sidetrack me from the goals that I want to achieve in formation? Will I be looked down upon? Will I disappoint my superiors, my bishop, because I'm not living up to a standard that everyone is expecting me to? And so the affliction becomes even greater because we're falling into the deception that somehow we can all measure success only by a goal-oriented ministry or a goal-oriented formation plan. As you all know, much of our work, we're never going to see the fruit of it. And we see this in the lives of the saints, often persecuted by their own people, even within religious orders, that it's only generations later that we herald them as saints. It takes time. So I think even in the seminary, we have to be able to learn how to bear our afflictions in a way that invites help. And then when we see this, when we see a brother seminary who's hurting, who has an affliction in their life, how are we going to be able to responsibly move in in a way that can bring counsel to them? Okay, fifth, forgive offenses willingly. Again, the history of biblical revelation is the story of how often God is capable and wants to bring forgiveness even in times where the people of God are not asking for it. Uh, we see Jesus summarizing uh, this sentiment in chapter 5 of Matthew. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? End quote. We're not all going to be friends. And I know as brother seminarians, you're not all going to become best friends. But my goodness, is there anyone harboring in this community right now a grudge in a way that you're not willing to forgive a brother seminarian, even if that other seminarian has no idea that he's wronged you. And so therefore you avoid him. You go into the dining room, you avoid that table, you do everything to just simply have little interaction with him. Is that really the description of a future spiritual father? Indeed, from a human standpoint, the love of enemies is undeniably Jesus' most demanding requirement. Considered since ancient times, this is the hallmark of the Christian life, to love the enemy. And there are a lot of enemies of the gospel. And of course, we're not judging the individual per se, but we are judging those sins which very much are enemies to what God is wanting for all of us. And so, whoever does not love those who hate him is not a Christian. That's the second letter of Clement. Whoever does not love those who hate him is not a Christian. Wow, that's a, a very strong statement. Even as St. Thomas Aquinas writes, forgiveness of enemies belongs to the perfection of charity. Hence the importance of forgiveness in order to carry out this act of mercy, again, is well expressed in the Lord's Prayer with the invocation, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Pope Francis, uh, in his letter, marking the Jubilee Year of Mercy, reminds us, quote, So many people, including young people, are returning to the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Let us place the Sacrament of Reconciliation at the center once more in such a way 
that it will enable people to touch the grandeur of God's mercy with their own hands. For every penitent, it will be a source of true interior peace. I will never tire of insisting that confessors be authentic signs of the Father's mercy, end quote. Indeed, a part of our priestly formation program is to help train you and prepare you to be good confessors. When we are hearing the sins of another person as the priest, our job is to judge in that moment, not them, but rather to judge the moment of how to make God's mercy accessible. The confessional is not an interrogation booth. We are not prosecutors. We are not trying to delve into the consciences of men and women to insult them, to embarrass them, to condemn them in any way. Rather, our job, and it's a noble, holy one at that, is to mediate God's mercy in a way that all those folks are able to enjoy and experience that which God wants, his mercy. Again, we see in biblical times the many undeniable ways of how God's mercy is brought to the people, even if they don't want it. God never stops wanting to forgive. And that, my dear sons, must be the experience by which you approach the sacrament, not only as one who is receiving God's mercy as a penitent, but as a future confessor that you yourself will know how to be able to mediate that mercy. And finally, uh, in this category, bearing wrongs patiently. The wisdom tradition forcefully stresses that when faced with irritating brothers, the wise remember, end quote, from the book of Proverbs, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Bearing wrongs patiently. I can tell you how often priests are wronged by their own flock. Their disappointment in the homily, you have to make a decision that many people may not want to support. For some reason, people think they can speak to priests in ways that they might not speak to any other person who's in public life. But we have to be able to deal with that in a way that allows us to be very patient, for patience is an art. And that begins here in this community. I'm sure there are many ways in which you are not patient with me, with this formation program. Why do we have to be doing these things? Why aren't we doing some of these other things that you might want to prefer? In many ways, you may be right. Uh, but you are in this stage of formation that requires you to be obedient, not blindly. That's why I always uh, welcome you, and uh, the whole faculty does, to provide your insights, your recommendations, and a way that we can grow our program. However, at the end of the day, we have to be able to find freedom in the status that we have. Uh, presbyterates in relationship to their bishops. Bishops have to exercise their authority and their judgment in ways that which they can only understand, only they or the bishop. And sometimes priests can be so critical of their bishops. Maybe that's why in the church's wisdom that every mass we celebrate, we remember our Holy Father in the bishops because they exercise a burden and a responsibility that none of us will ever understand. 
Uh, and so, in the seminary community, we too have to bear wrongs patiently. And there, there's a key word there, wrongs. There is a right and a wrong. And sometimes people do wrong things to each other. Uh, that doesn't mean we roll over. That means we embrace a virtue that will always allow God's grace to prevail. Finally, as our final work of spiritual mercy is prayer. Specifically, praying for the living and the dead. As the conclusion to these seven spiritual works of mercy, we present prayer as something that, that really is the fabric by which any community must be able to exist. And in this community here, I'm very pleased uh, and I would make the testament that all of us here can enjoy the fact that we are a praying community. Uh, I uh, always want to be able to share with you intentions that you bring to me as we pray for our own personal intentions. I try to include those in the morning update or the weekly update so that we're not just simply going through the motions with a very busy schedule, but through the liturgy of the hours, through the sacrifice of the Mass, their own personal prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, that prayer is the prevailing activity and exercise of this community. And so brothers, uh, as we prepare for uh, another year, as we're now in this new year of 2016, as we accept the graces of this jubilee year of mercy, let us consider both the spiritual works of mercy and the corporal works of mercy uh, as activities within this community, both at a personal level as well as at a communal level. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dearest Heavenly Father, you've given us the great gifts of faith, hope, and love, and we pray for an increase of those graces, that this apostolic community here at Notre Dame Seminary will always be in service to one another and to you, and that all that we say and do will bring you greater glory and honor in the name and in the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to the Notre Dame Seminary Podcast. Notre Dame is a Roman Catholic seminary and graduate school of theology located in New Orleans, Louisiana. For more information, log on to www.nds.edu. Thank you.